Have you ever thought about how you would change the world for the better? How you would change the world for the better? It's obvious the world has a lot of issues. War, human trafficking, slavery, violence, poverty, just to name a few big ones. And in our own personal lives, we have broken relationships, animosity, bitterness, resentments, etc. The world is broken. So if we had the power to fix it, to heal it, what would we do? Now. What if I told you we do have the power? What would you think? And what if I told you the power is kindness? What would you think? Would you think I'm naive or foolish or weak? Or maybe that I've been watching way too many Hallmark made-for-TV specials? Well, here's the thing. I am definitely a bit naive and I'm certainly foolish. And I understand many people think kindness is a weakness. I understand that. But I did not come to this conclusion from watching Hallmark movies. Though I watch a lot of them because my daughter's addicted to them. That's not where I got it. Instead, I come to this conclusion from reading the Bible. Let me try to explain. Here in the center of Paul's writing, he writes this magnificent composition about love, defining love. Remember, I believe this is the centerpiece of the entire Pauline library. And it is the center of the center of the center of the current essay we're on. Let's do a very quick reminder of Bailey's breakdown of 1 Corinthians. The book is made up of five essays. We are now in the fourth essay. We're getting close to, to finishing up our multi-year study here. So we're in Men and Women in Worship. And this entire essay is made up of seven homilies that are in a ring composition. His homilies themselves create this incredible ring composition in which right in the middle is this hymn to love that we've been studying for weeks now. But this homily itself is also its own ring composition. Again, love defined right in the middle of it. But what's even more amazing that we looked at a number of weeks ago is that even within this composition of five rings, there is another composition composition of seven rings. It's really incredible what Paul's done. So I just wanted to remind us of that because it's been a while. And what Paul does here, right in the middle, is he gives us this incredible little paragraph defining love in an ABA pattern in which he defines love positively on the outside and then in the middle he defines it in the negative. Now the pattern itself is interesting and many scholars have identified a reason for this pattern. The negatives in the middle, it does not envy, it does not boast, etc. This describes the Corinthians. This is who Paul is dealing with. So for example, he says it does not envy or is not jealous. Well, we know the Corinthians were jealous people. He told them that. You are still worldly for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you. So, they're jealous. Love does not boast. We know that they were boasting. Because he had to tell them, you need to knock that off. Love is not arrogant. We know that they were arrogant people because then you will not be puffed up, Paul says, in being a follower of one of us over against the other. And you'll remember some of these things way, way back. This was probably a year ago when we were in chapter 4. But still, this is the Corinthians that he's dealing with. Love is not rude or does not act unbecomingly. In chapter 7, he talks about a man acting unbecomingly toward his daughter. We know they acted unbecomingly at the Lord's Supper and in other parts of their life. These are the Corinthians. And then, right in the very center of the center, love does not seek its own, he says. 
And we know Paul consistently has been going through and saying to the Corinthians, don't seek your own good, but that of your neighbor. In fact, we've been using 1024 should probably be, hopefully, in our memories by now as the underlying purpose of Paul's great letter. So, and so that's the negatives. That's who the Corinthians were. He frames that in the positive, and this seems to define Paul and his ministry. Paul is patient. Paul is kind. He rejoices with the truth. He always protects. This is a powerful summation of this argument that he's been making, isn't it? This guy is just such a magnificent writer, and, and he has such command of the written rhetoric. And he basically has been saying, you Corinthians call yourselves Christians, but you act like this. You're jealous, and you boast, and you're proud. This is not Christian behavior at all. Because Christian behavior is love, and love is none of these things. Where he says, I, on the other hand, Paul, an apostle, I act like this. And this is true Christian behavior. Spectacular center of his argument. This, he's just putting his whole letter together right here. But like with most things that Paul writes, this transcends just his immediate concern. His immediate concern is exposing the Corinthians' gross misunderstanding of Christianity. Alright? So they've really missed what it is. But he is also communicating some of the most paradigm-shifting understanding of the very character of God. Of course, Jesus Christ is the ultimate communication of that character, right? And as we read this paragraph, certainly you start to sense what Fee says. Fee says, in this paragraph, Paul seems best to capture the life and ministry of Jesus. And certainly this is the Jesus we find in the Gospels. When you read through the Gospels, you can't help but think, yeah, that's the Jesus there, right? This is clear that Jesus is this kind of person. But we have to be careful here. And we've talked about this before at Cana, and, and we will continue to talk about it, but Christianity is a monotheistic religion. This is so important. We have one God. The Trinity is an important, and it's a powerful, and it's a mysterious doctrine. But one thing it is not. It is not an invitation to create three distinct gods out of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as some of us are wont to do. Jesus himself was clear, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So Paul here is describing God. And one of the things he says is, God is kind. God is kind. Here's the thing. This was not new. This was not new. Yes, it was paradigm shifting for his audience because so many people were convinced God was not kind. And it remains paradigm shifting today even because a lot of Christians believe in a God who is not kind at all. But it was not new. Paul and other writers of the New Testament were always trying to make this point, as were most of the writers of the Old Testament too. Sadly, this point often gets missed in the details of interpretation. Let's just look at a few references from the Old Testament. Here's Psalm 145, 8 through 9. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Psalm 63, 2 and 3. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I love this. Notice, notice, your love is better than life, so I will glorify you, comes right after what, does the psalmist say? I beheld your power and your glory. And then he talks about his love. 
Psalm 36, 7 through 9. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your rivers of delight. For you, with you is the fountain of light. In your light we see light. Psalm 89, 1 through 2. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. Now about this in Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Think about that just for a moment. God wants to get something across about himself, and the first things he says compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. The great prophet Isaiah, I shall make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindness. Isaiah again in 54.10, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Jeremiah the prophet. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. And then Ezekiel. Highlight these ones. Tito, you highlight these ones. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God. Rather than that, he should turn from his ways and live. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Those are powerful verses coming out of the prophet's mouth. And these come from the New Testament. Romans 2.4, do you think lightly of the richness of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So I love what throne of grace, right? I love that song that we sing here, throwing. That the ki God's kindness leads to repentance. Titus, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared. I love that. I just said, Jesus was, you know, Jesus, Paul was writing about Jesus, writing about God. When the kindness of God appeared, Jesus Christ, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, and Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, you can read that, even when we were his enemies, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, the ages, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Because of his great love for us. Now perhaps it's starting to make sense why I suggested that kindness is the power that can heal you. This is the power of God. God used kindness to save the world. So what greater power could there ever be, as far as we're concerned? What greater power could there be? Kindness is world-saving power. But now let's be clear. 
All right? Just as we saw last week, last week we looked at patience and we realized that this concept Paul writes about is far, far more than the way we define patience. So kind is far more than the way we would define kindness. Our dictionaries tell us this is what kindness means. Having or showing a gentle nature and a desire to help others, wanting and liking to do good things and to bring happiness to others, and certainly these are good things. I firmly believe, in fact, that part of being Christian in our world is practicing this level of kindness. I believe that. God knows we need it in this world. I'm often amazed at what can come out of Christians' mouths and, or Christians' posts. I'm, I'm amazed. If we could just be humanly kind, it would go a long way. But God's kindness is something even far greater. Far greater than that. I love the way Stephen Pattison puts it. Stephen Pattison says, Kindness is the uncommon power to give selflessly to someone who gives nothing back. Kindness. The uncommon power to give selflessly to someone who gives nothing back. Isn't that exactly what the cross is? Is it? This is the culmination of and the rev ultimate revelation of God's eternal kindness to us. Right? Giving selflessly to us who could possibly give him nothing back. In fact, this is exactly what lay at the root of the word in the Old Testament that is often translated as loving kindness. We looked at that, just a few references to that, but this word in the Old Testament, I can't say it because it has that heavy guttural sound at the beginning of it, but the transliteration of the Hebrew word is H-E-S-E-D. Goodness, kindness, faithfulness. It occurs nearly 250 times in the Old Testament in reference to God. 250 times. I, without going way off on a tangent, because my daughter's time me this morning, but this just hit me. We have spent the last 10 years, almost 20, in this country as Christians, arguing, debating, fighting about a concept that comes up in Scripture six times, Three of those times, scholars of the original language still debate what it is. So it's only three times really in Scripture. And it has consumed American Christianity for 20 years and continues to divide the church. 250 times in the Old Testament alone, the loving kindness of God is talked about. And all I ever hear said to me is, well, David, you, you have to balance that. God's not just kind. Really? Well, the term has to do, okay, it means goodness, kindness, faithfulness, and has to do with loyalty within relationship. It is mostly used, think about this, in context of God's covenant relationship with Israel, but because Israel all, was always not loyal, and was always breaking the covenant, it is really not a reciprocal concept the way we want it to be. There is a lot of language in the Old Testament, if then. God seems to say, if you do this, then I will do this. But if you do that, then I will do this. And it seems imperative. 
until you read the Old Testament closely. God never goes back on his love for them. The Old Testament is about God's loyalty even in the face of extreme disloyalty. Does he get angry? Absolutely. Is he sad? Absolutely. Does he rage? Absolutely. The language is powerful. In fact, the, the Isaiah, what we were just reading, those verses from Isaiah, the book of Isaiah starts with God brokenhearted that his children, who he has done nothing but love, have abandoned. And so everything else that Isaiah says about God's raging passion comes from a broken heart. It doesn't come from an angry God that hates us. It comes from a Father's love that is broken and raging. But then even in the end, he relents and remains steadfast and loyal. That's the story of the Old Testament. I'm not making it up. Just read it. Read it. Don't pick out verses. Read the whole thing. It's not a reciprocal relationship. That's the beauty of God. And that's why, as you read through the Old Testament, this word that in the original is over 250 times, it gets translated sometimes as mercy. Steadfast love. Loyalty. Kind. It's truly the power of God. And this is the power He wants us to live out in the world. This is the power He wants us to live out in the world. More than anything else He wants in us. Which makes sense. We know He does not want anyone to perish, right? Peter, we looked at that last week. God's patient, not wanting anyone to perish. When we just read, He does not delight in the death of anyone. Even His worst enemies. So He then wants us to take this power into the world around us, kindness. So that all will come to love him and love others. Because when everyone is loving, the world will be healed. Consider these Old Testament references of his desire for us to be kind. It's fun reading all these verses together, so I hope you don't mind. I, I actually thought of not even doing a sermon today, just reading verses together. But I want to give them some context. Alright? Here's Old Testament references of God wanting us to be kind. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it to you when you have it with you. Leviticus, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then he continues a little later, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So that covers everyone. Right? There's no exclusivity there. Kind. The great prophet again. Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own foot? Kindness. Zechariah 7, 9, and 10. Thus 
thus has the Lord of hosts said, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Hosea, for I desired mercy, that's that word again, and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And Micah, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. I love that. It's one of my favorite verses. Put that up against what often is presented to us as the checklist of being a good Christian. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And by the way, that justice has nothing to do with human justice, of, of giving people punishment for what they do. That justice has to do with what Isaiah was talking about over here. Justice. Feeding the hungry, housing the poor, clothing the naked, etc. And then the New Testament. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And what I love so much about this, especially right now, we just read all those Old Testament verses together, you know, Jesus never contradicted Scripture. What he did was contradict people's interpretation of Scripture. These people he's talking to, you shall love your, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but the Old Testament really doesn't say that when you read it closely, Right? We just read about that. Jesus again in Luke's Gospel, but love your enemies and do good and land, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your fathers were. That is a very powerful line. For he himself, God himself, is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So where then does that allow for signs that say God hates certain kinds of people? How does that allow for that? He is kind. Kind to evil and ungrateful people. Paul, to the Romans, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. That echoes Paul 10.24, right? Seek not your own good, but the good of your neighbor. And Paul, in the next Corinthians letter, but in everything commending ourselves to servants of God, in what? In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I swear, Christians have written their own Bible on what the fruit of the Spirit is. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Again, this is not, and again, this often gets read as an exclusive thing. Well, we've got to take care of the household of the faith. Well, yes, but that's in combination with doing good to all people. It's not, well, put one above the other. No, it's just, let's make sure, certainly we're going to take care of brothers and sisters, but we do good to all people. We don't become exclusive. 
Ephesians, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So as those who have been chosen of God, this is Colossians, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 2 Thessalonians, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. 1 Timothy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. James, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. To visit orphans and widows in their distress, kindness, and here we go, let's be careful, to keep oneself unstained by the world. This creates an entire way of doing life that is not kind at all. The stain of the world that God wants us to keep away from is the hatred of our enemy and the lack of love for others. The very first thing after the fall that happened, Cain killed his brother. There's the stain of the world. Hatred. Kindness, we are called to. First Peter, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The kindness. And John, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's good, goods, and sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in Do these guidelines for us to be kind sound like they come from a God who is not kind? We're all created in the image of God. And yes, that image is cracked, but by His own kindness, He is healing that image in us. And it is as, and it, and as it is healed in us, we are then called to go and live out in the world around us Live out the power to give selflessly to even those who will give nothing back. It is the only thing that could possibly change the world. I recently read the story of a laborer in England back in the 1800s. He was a member of a club of atheists that met in London. So during one meeting, uh, the rather famous atheist Charles Bradlaugh, some of you may have heard of him, he gave a rousing speech attacking Christianity and, and religions in general. And after which he challenged anyone in the audience to refute him. Now, of course, that's a pretty safe challenge when you're talking to an atheist club, right? So there's that sort of a little disingenuous. But anyway. But on this particular night, this laborer stood up and here's what he said. He said, you all know me. I have been a member of this club for five years. Some months ago I lost my work and I was ill. And to make matters worse, my wife was ill. Not one of you came near me, though my illness was known here. But someone came, and his wife nursed us and provided for us. Otherwise, neither my wife nor I would have been alive today. That man was a city missionary, who on previous occasions I had driven away from my door with threats. When I was well enough to think, I asked him why he had been so kind to us. 
And he told me he had done it for the love of Christ. And then this laborer said this in front of that whole club. I say that a religion which will bring a man to the bedside of one who has hated him and cursed him is a good thing for this life. Yes, the kind of religion is a good thing. Maybe that is why James called it the only true religion. And why Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love. You know, sadly, I don't think most of what we call Christianity today would necessarily be defined as a good thing for this life. Our arguing, our debating, our exclusivity, our agendas. But love, love is different. Love is kind. And it can change the world. And you know, I never realized this until studying for this the last few weeks. Every word that Paul uses here to define love is a verb. And that's not by accident. In the original, it's a verb. In fact, the word we're on today, kind, it is the only time this word appears in all of Greek literature. Because it's probably a word Paul made up. He probably took the adjective for kind and turned it into a verb to prove what he was trying to say. We are all called to live lives of love, and love is an action, a very powerful action. Might God help us all to be kind. Love.